I don't know. I mean, one story that I think is funny, I, this TV agent, you know, he, he signed me on and he said, oh, I'm going to make you a star. You know, <laughs> He didn't make me a star. But he called me up about a year and a half later and he said, you know, I haven't been able to make you a star. How about if we get, how about if we get a, you a manager? And I said, well, what's a manager? And he mm-hmm. said, well, I know half the people in Hollywood. He knows the other half. So between the two of us, you know, we'll make you a star. <laughs> and the downside was that the manager at that time was charging 15%. Yeah, you add it up, I'm giving up 25% of my money. But I thought about it and I said, well, 25% of zero is zero. I'm, I'm good. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. Do I have an interesting mentor for you guys this week? So my mentor this week for you guys is Matt Whitten. Matt is a TV writer, novelist, playwright, and teacher. He has written for TV shows like uh, Law and Order and uh, House and Supernatural and Pretty Little Liars and Medium, and the list goes on and on. And he's also written pilots for MTV, ABC, and The CW. So he talks a little bit about that process and what's the pilot season like for a writer. Or not really the season, but just writing pilots. And uh, the journey is so interesting. First of all, he's a funny guy. He um, talked about how he got his first agent and he provided a voice for the agent. So I only have that voice in mind when I think of agents now. And he talks about his upcoming book, The Necklace, which is, you know, it's coming out next year, but it's already being optioned by a huge celebrity slash production company. And it talks about what a writer's room for a TV show is like, which I loved to hear about specifically like the hierarchy in a writer's room. We might know the head writer, but what's that head writer like? What's another way of saying the head writer? What's another, what, you know, what are the positions in the hierarchy to get to that? And uh, why he loved working on different shows and stories about different shows. I personally love the story he talked about with regards to Pretty Little Liars, actually. He really loved working on that show. And he talks about why plotting that show is different than other shows. He talks about, or I specifically asked him about if writers get inspired or do they write for particular actors. And he used the example of Hugh Laurie in House. And uh, he also talks about something called RBI, which I really liked the idea behind. And I'll let him define it for you in the episode. But he talks about how it's so important to have RBI in a writer's room and why that really makes a difference for him as to the environment that creates. Guys, this is such a great episode. Um, I'm trying to make these episodes under an hour. And as a result... I took about 10 minutes or so from the interview and this 10 minutes was specifically like three or so questions that I got from people, from you guys, from, from social media, from Instagram and Facebook. I got questions on what to ask my mentors, specifically this one, which is with a TV writer and a novelist. And I got these great questions and I wrote them down and I asked him and it, they're great answers, but I just, I wanted to provide a different place for them. So I put them on the Facebook group for mentors on the mic, which I haven't really invited anyone to, but I'm going to put that, uh, I'm going to make that available on the Facebook group. So please join the group, listen to these answers, these questions and answers. They're really interesting. And, um, and, and comment uh, on other questions you want me to ask future mentors or what other mentors you'd want to see. And, uh, without further ado, welcome Matt Whitten. All right. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hi, Michelle. Good to see you. It's good to see you too. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. I'm very, very excited about this. Uh, so I'd like to start off this podcast the way I do every episode. How did you start in this entertainment industry of ours? Uh, well, well, let's see. I started writing poems when I was in first grade. And then when I was in uh, 10th grade, I had a, a crush on my uh, drama teacher. And she suggested that I write a uh, play. So I did. I wrote a one-act play that got performed at, at the local uh, women's church group. And wow. I got uh, $10 for it. And, uh, and I got applause and I was hooked. And I thought so, that was first grade? Uh, 
That was 10th grade. 10th grade. Yeah, I, I decided not to write too much from 1st to 10th grade. I needed to get more life experience. <laughs> you needed to find the, the right drama teacher to crush on. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so then when I was uh, 17, I had a, uh, an undiagnosed illness. And I told myself that if I ever, uh, God willing, got uh, healthy again, that I would remember that writing was at the core of my being. And so, uh, so I held to that, you know, ever since then, uh, when I, I did get well a few months later. And I've stuck to that. There was one time in, when I was feeling particularly impecunious when I did apply to law school. And I, I even got in and got a scholarship. But at, that was at the same point where I had a, actually a bunch of success happen just right at that point. So I, I never followed through on that. But other than that, I've held, you know, pretty tight to doing this. I don't know. I started writing plays when I was in my early uh, 20s. And, um, you know, I wrote plays. And then when I was about uh, 27 or 28, I wrote a good play. <laughs> uh, this uh, good play uh, got performed and, you know, I got an agent and I wrote plays for a while. And this uh, was, what was the play that got the, you the agent? Was it The Deal? Yeah, it was The Deal. Oh, uh-huh, you've done your research. Try. <laughs> yeah, it was The Deal. It was based on a, um, on a true life court case that happened uh, right near me in Somerville, Massachusetts. So I got some press credentials for a local alternative weekly. And I went in and I attended this court case for uh, a month. And uh, uh, based on that, I wrote this play that was, um, yeah, it was quite successful. It was about an FBI uh, sting operation on small town politicians. So I wrote that. I wrote some other plays that, you know, I could talk about. But started writing novels, too, because I had always really loved reading mystery novels. Really, one of my favorite things to do in the world is to, you know, sit with a cup of tea and put my feet up at the end of the day and read a, a murder mystery. So I tried my hand at uh, writing them, and uh, I got uh, turned down by, I think, 30 agents. It was uh, give or take one or two. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then I, I, I got an agent who was interested because I just won a, a prize, a writing prize. So I told him I'd won this writing prize, and he... Was it for the deal? No, this was for a novel. I oh, Sorry okay. if I'm going you know, forward too fast. No, but, you're fine. But, yeah, no, you know, at this point... I you know I was writing this novel called Breakfast at Madeline's and it was yeah I mean so like I had trouble getting agents then this one I won this one contest and this one agent I had really wanted for like six months but he hadn't like read my stuff every month or whatever I would write him you know have you read my thing yet and no I haven't read it yet and then one day I wrote him and I said oh I just won this contest just so you know and the following Monday morning he called me up at 8:45 in the morning wow. and I was just taking my kids off to school and. I got this phone call, must have been 745 actually then, and I got this phone call and, uh, and he said, hi, Matt, this is Jimmy. <laughs> I couldn't figure out who it was and then I realized, oh my God, is this this agent I've been trying to get for six months, Jimmy, Jimmy Vines? And he said, love your book. He said, I'm going to get you, I'm going to put it out on auction, I'm going to get you offers within a week. Wow. And I, I didn't you know, particularly believe him. But I was living in upstate New York at the time. I, I took a train down to New York City the next day, which was Tuesday. I saw him. And he said, I'm going to get you, I'm going to send out the 14 people. I'm telling you, we're going to get offers within a week. And the next day, I was up in Saratoga Springs. It was Wednesday. I got a call. Uh, he said, Matt, this is Jimmy. Just got an offer from Random House. Wow. And uh, then he said, Matt, this is Jimmy. Just got an offer from Signet. That was on Thursday. Friday, wow. I didn't, Friday, I didn't get an offer. And I was like really hurt, you know, it was terrible. Yeah. And then Monday, like, Jimmy, mo- what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. I was ticked off. So anyway, Monday, I got a third offer. So anyway, that was just a fun story. I like telling that story because it really followed on six months of getting no's and no agent didn't even want to see it. And they told me, oh, this isn't the kind of book that sells. And mm. well, they were wrong. Anyway, I did that and I'm, I'm kind of going on. I should probably let you ask some questions. No, you're so fine. I, I, no, you're fine. I, I wanted to ask you though, um, so because I know people are going to want to know, how did you originally even get Jimmy's number or any of those agents you were submitting to? Well, the literary agents, I got their information from, um, I guess, I don't, you know, I guess there must have been some books. I would say people now that have written a novel, that if they want to find an agent, uh, the best advice I would give is to read other books by writers who are somewhat similar to you. So, for instance, the reason I selected Jimmy was because my novel was a humorous amateur sleuth novel with a man as a main character uh, written by a man. And there are very few of these books. Most humorous amateur sleuth novels uh, have a woman main character, and most of them are written by women. But I did find that Jimmy just happened to represent 
Don Winslow at the time, now a very famous writer of other kinds of books, uh, was doing those. Bill Fitzhugh. Uh, there were two or there were about four writers in total that were that fit that category. So I said, Oh my God, Jimmy is my man. He's the guy that's got to represent me. So, so for writers now, I would recommend, you know, looking for the books that are like yours, finding out who that agent is. And those resources are available on the internet. If you look up, you know, authors, agents, you'll, you'll find it. Um, yeah, I feel like this is going to come up a lot is, is how much research writers are usually have to do with regards to what they're writing, with regards to finding an agent. It's like a yeah. common theme. And obviously, the other thing is to go through people you know. I mean, that, that's the other thing. I just wrote a novel uh, last year, and I hadn't written one in 20 years because I was busy doing TV. So I had to go through a whole process of finding an agent again because mm-hmm. Jimmy had left the business. Oh. So. In this case, I called up a friend of mine who's an editor and I said, could you recommend, you know, your seven favorite agents? Mm. And I sent my novel to the seven favorite agents. So that's, that was how I did it this time. And I used her name and she's an editor. So they're all going to be nice to me because I'm coming in with that recommendation. But also, you, you know, you have all this experience now. You have all this, you know, writing behind you. So, you know, it is true. That's very true. Although I will say I've been stunned that agents and I think other people, but certainly agents don't really respond or care if you've been successful in another area. So for instance, oh. going back going back 20 uh, years to uh, 25 years to when um, when I wrote Breakfast at Madeline's, at that time, I was already a reasonably successful playwright. You know, I had plays right. professionally produced. I had already written for the TV show Homicide. And I thought, man, you know, with those credits, you know, any literary agent, any book agent is going to say, okay, I got to read a book by this guy. Yeah. Um, but really, out of those 30 agents I submitted to, um, I would say 20 or 24 of them turned me down without even reading my book or any chapters wow. of it. There were maybe six or 10 that re- did read the first part of it and, and didn't think it would sell. But, uh, you know, it was interesting to me. It didn't quite have that, that transference that I would have expected. Is your next one the one that you worked on last year? Is that a mystery novel as well or something different? Uh, the one I wrote last year, it's called The Necklace, and it will come out next year. It's going to be yeah. published by Ocean View uh, Publishing. Excellent. It, it's a uh, mystery thriller, and it's based mm. on a uh, true life story, or it's inspired by a true life story that I read. There was a woman who lived in uh, upstate New York. I read this article about eight or ten years ago in, in a small newspaper, and she was trying to raise money. She was trying to raise, you know, like a thousand dollars. Because she wanted to travel from where she lived in upstate New York to North Dakota so that she could witness the execution of the man who had been convicted of raping and killing her young daughter 20 years previously. So this woman, she had no money. So she was having a fundraiser at the local bar, you know, to raise money. And, uh, And I just thought that was just a really interesting story. And it just stuck in my mind for about eight years. And, uh, and finally I decided, whatever, I'm just going to write some, some up and see what happens. So I wrote a scene that took place, uh, at the bar where she's raising the money. And I thought, well, that's good. That's a good scene. And I went out for coffee with my buddy, uh, John Henry. And I said, uh, John Henry, I wrote this scene for like, I don't know, a novel or a movie. I don't know. I don't know, you know, where it would go. What do you think? And he read it. And he said, oh, you know, I love this scene. He said, I know what's going to happen. And I said, oh, tell me what's going to happen, because I really don't know. And he said, well, she's going to find out that maybe the guy who's going to be executed is not the guy who raped and killed her daughter. Like, John, I I don't know. And at first I resisted it. I I just felt like, I don't know. That seems like, because I wanted to write like um, an artsy kind of like road trip movie, like indie road trip movie. So at first I said no, but by the next morning I was fully on board. I said, I'm going to write it. I said, it does sound like something commercial, but I'm not going to hold it against it. You know, I'm just going to do it. And, uh, and then I wound up loving it. So I wrote this, this novel in which, um, in which, yeah, she finds out maybe the guy didn't do it. And then she's got to save his life because he's about to be executed Saturday, 5.30 PM. She's got to wow. figure out what the heck is going on before then. Uh, plus it's going to turn out there's another young girl who's at risk right now. So she's got to find out the truth. So I wrote the novel and, uh, you know, happy to say, you know, you know it, it sold and, and it's actually optioned now for a movie by uh, Appian Way, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's company. I was going to ask you, because that sounds like a great movie, like visually, I can see that. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm really excited about that. Working with them has been great. And then the funny part. I'll just say one more funny part to this, please. Which, which is that um, I found out last year there's a woman up in Idaho named Carol Dodge, real life person, and Carol Dodge uh, actually began to believe exact same story. Her 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 daughter was uh, unfortunately uh, raped and killed. God forbid. And the guy who was in prison and about to be executed, she came to think he was innocent. And so she devoted her life to getting him out of prison. Wow. And she did, she did, in fact, get him out of prison last year. His name was Chris Tapp. They got him out of prison, and they found the, uh, the, the person who actually did this to her daughter. Oh, my um, God. So it was, it, was, it was pretty funny that the story that I had written. That you just kind of, that you and, and your friend just kind of, John Henry just made up at a bar kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, like I said, great movie potential. <laughs> well, and you have a true you. story to like, you know, you can either sort of um, emulate the story or you can emulate the book or combine the two. I mean, yeah, we're, we're hitting the book. We're, you know, we're hitting the book. The, uh, I mean, Carol Dodge's story, that would be a, a good... Um, uh, certainly documentary and probably good yeah. movie too, but you know, mine's a different kettle of fish. Yeah. And you want to, yeah, stay close to that. So then sort of let's switch gears. Cause I mean, uh -huh. you really have had such a like long career in different parts of, you know, different writing. So what was your first take onto TV? So you said homicide. How did you get into yeah. writing that? Well, you know, my story is not typical of most people's stories. So for your uh, listeners that are interested in getting into TV, uh, I'd be happy to talk a more, about a more standard route. Uh, I'll just say briefly, my route was that people uh, liked uh, uh, my place, and so they, they wound up hiring me. Uh, Tom Fontana, who hired me out to Homicide, had seen one of my plays at a, at a theater that he ran called uh, the Writer's Theater in New York City. And, um, and I got my first TV agent because he had seen uh, The Deal, uh, my play The Deal, at a theater in uh, Los Angeles. I don't know. I mean, one story that I think is funny. I, this, this TV, this TV agent, you know, he, he signed me on and he said, Oh, I'm going to make you a star. You know, <laughs> he really said that. It was pretty funny. He also used the word synchronicity in our first phone call. And that was back in those days where I lived in upstate New York, you know, a small town. Nobody used the word synchronicity. So I thought, man, who is this guy? You know, I just, whatever. It sounded like, I don't know, some kind of astrology word, you know, which I wasn't yeah. into. And it's like, um, and so then eventually I moved to L.A. and I found out everybody was using the word synchronicity. <laughs> it didn't make them different at all. I think that's not such a common word anymore, but actually I could, it is. It is. Not as much as it used to be, but it is. Anyway, so he said, I'm going to make you a star. So I was living in upstate New York. He didn't make me a star. But he called me up about a year and a half later. And he said, you know, I haven't been able to make you a star. How about <laughs> if we get, how about if we get a, you a manager? And I said, well, what's a manager? And he mm -hmm. said, well, I know half the people in Hollywood. He knows the other half. So between the two of us, you know, we'll make you a star. <laughs> and the downside was that the manager at that time was charging 15%. So oh, you yeah, I was going to ask about I'm that. Giving, yeah, you add it up, I'm giving up 25% of my money. But I thought about it and I said, well, 25% of zero is zero. Yep. So I'm, I'm good. So I said yes. And then he got my script to, uh, this was after the homicide thing. I had gotten the homicide thing, but then I think I was like a year and a half before my next TV job. That's my memory of it. Okay. So anyway, the manager got me to uh, to Rene Balsay, who was the head writer of uh, Law and Order. Rene liked my one of, one of my uh, scripts, uh, Washington Square Moves was the name of that play, and he liked it. And he so he ha I had a meeting with him down at some hotel in New York City. So I took the train down from Saratoga Springs and got to the hotel, and I had six ideas in my little brown folder for Law and Order episodes. So Rene said, "Sure, yeah, pitch them to me." So I pitched them. And he said, no, nah, it doesn't sound like Law and Order. I pitched him another one. Ah, uh, you know, that's good, but we've already done it. I pitched him a third one. Ah, uh, you know, not good. You know, I pitched him a fourth one. And I don't remember any of those ideas except one because it was the stu stupidest one. <laughs> so I'll tell you this one because it was so amazingly stupid. So I said, okay, here's my idea. A guy playing baseball, you know, professional baseball game, and he gets beamed in the head and he gets killed. And we find out that Actually, you know, the manager ordered the beanball pitch and ordered the pitcher to do it really hard. So maybe the manager should be culpable. So that's the show. Renee said, oh, interesting. But now what's the mystery on who killed him? <laughs> it's like there is no mystery. It's like the worst law and order idea ever. I mean, it maybe has a little bit of a back half, but there's no front half to it. 
I was so embarrassed. I was like, I put it away really quick. But somewhere in this conversation, you know, I, had, I pitched these six things. They all, they all uh, died. Thanked, yeah. But somewhere in the conversation, in order to sound interesting, I mentioned the, the fact that I had been working as a um, teacher in prisons. And in fact, I, I taught uh, playwriting in a prison. It was one of the high points of my life, actually, was to do a, uh, produce an evening of uh, one acts written by and performed by the, uh, the inmates at the prison. Wow. So I was just talking about that a little bit, just to, you know, round out myself a little bit. So I'm not just like your random, you know, wannabe TV writer, but actually a person. So after he rejected all my ideas, he said, I thought it was interesting what you said about prison. We've been wanting to crack a TV, uh, prison episode. So I immediately start, wow. you know, pitching ideas or we start running ideas back and forth about prison episodes. And I'm not usually the most good person, like on my feet. I'm better when I'm thinking things through in advance. For some reason, I was great that day. I must have been desperate after six things getting rejected. And the other thing I did that was smart was like I took out my notebook I had with me and I started writing stuff down like I already had the job, you know, it was like writing stuff down. So anyway, that was that. And so I left the hotel, was in Midtown somewhere, and then I'm heading on on a cab to the train station so I can get back to Saratoga Springs. And in the cab, I get a phone call from my manager. He says, what? You got the job. (laughs) Well, so, I mean, I wanted to ask about that, actually. So, obviously, they don't really teach you how to pitch a lot of the time. I think now there's more pitch classes and stuff, but how was it going into that pitch meeting? Well, it was scary. You know, I I don't know if it was scary, but it was certainly, I don't know, I was just doing my best. I I had never really watched Law & Order, so, you know, I watched a lot, uh, you know, whatever, five or ten Law & Order episodes before I went in for the pitch as many as I had time for, like I got the meeting on Thursday and it was already Monday. So yeah. I watched them. I came up with ideas as quickly as I could. Um, somehow I knew that you don't want to like give long detailed pitches, you know, give it in a paragraph or two. And then if, if that's catches people good and if not, you know, move on. Um, and I really don't, you know, I don't know. I just did my best. Yeah. Um, but, um, okay. And how was your first day, uh, you know, in the writer's room for Law and Order? Well, uh, writer's room didn't, uh, Law and Order didn't really have a writer's room. Um, it was, uh, that was true and maybe still is of, of TV series that are like have self-contained episodes, do not have serialized episodes when each individual, when each episode can stand on its own. Um, so the way it worked at Law and Order was, uh, I worked with one guy, a guy named Richard Swearin, uh, who was a, um, you know, on the staff. And he was sort of mentoring me during that process. This was a freelance episode, so he mentored me on that process. We love mentors on mentors on the mic. <laughs> well, he he was great. He was very kind. Put up with my 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 stupidities, and uh, <laughs> and so you know I don't know. We just we just worked on it. And did you tell him the know, idea we, that you had the last the last pitch? Yeah, yeah. And then we worked idea. it out. And you know, basically, whether you're in a writer's room or whether you're working, you know, in this situation with Richard. You know, basically what you do is you write up a one-liner. You write up, you know, one or two sentences about each scene. And you put it up on the board or on your computer or on index cards, whatever you have that can help you do it visually. And you come up with the one-liner for the whole uh, episode. Then after you've done that, you know, you pitch it verbally to each other. You pitch it verbally to somebody else. You pitch it to the head writer. It depends on the exact situation. But you pitch it verbally to see if it makes sense, see if it works. And then once it's working, then you, then you turn it into an outline. Then you flesh it out. Then you write it up. If it's a writer's room, in that situation, you know, it's up on the whiteboard around the room. And then one, one person is assigned to, you know, take that one-liner, go back to their office, and write it up into, uh, let's say, a roughly, rough, very roughly, 10-page uh, uh, outline um, that also utilizes the information that the writer's room assistant has uh, has typed up for him, so so you remember what everything is, and then you give it to the head writer, and then it gets worked on some more. But that process, I don't know. So that's that's the general process of it. I'll tell you one thing that sticks out to my mind from that early Law and Order days, because that was actually the freelance episode. Then the head writer uh, Renee liked the freelance episode, and he, he uh, offered me the staff position in Law and Order. Got and it. at that point, I, I moved my family. From Saratoga Springs, to small LA. town to Los Angeles. My how, wife was long, a little lo- less you... than enthusiastic. She really? she was a tenured professor at a, a community college, so she was um, 
she was not enthusiastic. Neither was my eight-year-old son. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's hard with all your friends in school. But when we got out to LA, I think my first episode I wrote after I was on staff, again, I co-wrote it with Richard. And what I really remember from that, and what I always tell students or people who are beginning to do TV writing is, you know, Richard and I wrote up this outline, got our, you know, 10-page outline together, and we give it to the head writer, Renee. And Renee calls us in, and he, you know, we all look at our outline there, and he says, he says, I have a question for you. From, you know, here, Act 1, Beat 2, and by the way, in Law & Order, each, episode, each act has maybe uh, nine scenes. So he says, in Act 1, Scene 2, is it possible that you could go from the, what new happens between Act 1, Scene 2, and Act 2, Scene 8? Is there any reason not to go just straight from there to there? Mm. Uh, from Act 1, Scene 2 to Act 2, Scene 8, uh, Richard and I looked at each other and we said, well, I don't know, you know. So we got out of there and I was like, oh my God, we're totally screwed. This is terrible. You know, my they're never going to renew my contract because I just had a 20-week contract at that point. Mm. You know, I just messed up my first episode. How could I be so stupid? Because, you know, we just lost like a approximately one and a half acts out of a four act show. Wow. Yeah. So I was like feeling terrible. I said to Richard, Oh my God, that was horrible. And he looked at me and said, you know, what are you talking about? I said, well, you just trash uh, one and a half acts of our show. He said, Oh, that's great. Usually it's more than that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I, whatever I learned from that, you know, yeah. you're not perfect. Things get rewritten. You were rewritten. doing something right. Yeah, things get rewritten, you know, uh, you're not going to be perfect the first time and stuff like that. How anyway, many, that's, that's how many episodes did you write before they offered you the staff writing contract? Uh, just one. I did the one, wow. I did the one freelance uh, episode. And that's not, you know, an uncommon situation. Yeah? And what I remember from that is I wrote this episode set in prison. Right. And before I turned it into Renee and Richard, actually, I... I gave it to a friend of mine who was a corrections officer at one of the prisons I had worked at. Yeah. And I said, Charlie, you know, can you read this? Let me know anything you have to add. So he read it for me. He said very nice things. He said, but one thing, he said, you know, when you, when you talk about a riot, you know, prison riot, he said, we wouldn't use that terminology. We wouldn't call it a riot. Okay. We would call it a multiple man fight. And I said, okay. <laughs> so in the script, I wrote, you know, multiple man fight when somebody in some dialogue. So anyway, after the script is done and like then, I mean, it's performed and, you know, it's on TV. And then Renee asks me for my original writer's draft, the one that Richard hadn't worked on at all. And he just wants to look at it closely. So when he offered me the job, or uh, he said, he said, I got to tell you, man, I love your script. He said, man, multiple man fight. Oh, my God. Multiple man fight. Shoot. Oh, my God. And he talked about that like for five minutes. And I thought, okay, you know, that's, 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 a, I always think that's what got me the job. That's yeah. what got me my TV career was multiple man fight <laughs> and was, was taking that first script to Charlie, the corrections officer that I know. That's amazing. And on a more broad level, you know, I, you know, sometimes tell that story to my students just as a way of emphasizing, you know, just how important research is. You might research, you know, like for five hours and you might get one word out of it, multiple man fight, three words. And uh, that is, um, that's going to be like, you know, the most important thing. That's so good. That's such good advice. So you did a few episodes of Law & Order. How long, how long were you there for? Uh, three years on staff there. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And so what, what made you decide to go to another project after? Um, let me think about that one. The, you know, the, the uh, head writer at that point, there was a different head writer and then a different head writer. And so the head writer that was there, you know, he offered me to to uh, to keep going, but I didn't think that he was totally, you know, on my side, really. Mm. Uh, it didn't seem quite a uh, right situation. Yeah. I didn't like him. <laughs> there you go. It's a good enough reason. No. It wasn't the right uh, environment for you. you... Not at that point. It, no. it started out being good, but by the time, you know, the third head writer was there, it was, mm. uh, yeah, time to move on. So let me ask quickly, actually, that's a good question. Um, what's the difference between like a staff writer and a head writer in terms of responsibilities on a show? Well, the head writer is the guy that's the ultimate, like, you know, with a TV show, you want to keep a certain amount of consistency for yeah. all the shows. You know, it has to be the character has to be consistent throughout the type of dialogue has to be consistent. So he's the final person that it goes through his or her pen to uh, make sure that everything is 
you know, is consistent, consistent is yeah. good. He, and, and, you know, they're the last person that is going to, you know, be in charge of everything. Right. So that's, you know, that's the head writer's job, also called the showrunner. Showrunner. And the people that are on staff, you know, their job is to, uh, you know, to write the episodes, to write the outlines. And uh, now that just about all shows are serialized, to be in the writer's room and come up with ideas uh, there. Well, speaking of ideas, because I mean, as an actor myself, so I know there's a lot of actors listening to this. Our experience with the showrunner is different. They're the ones that really cast us. They're, they're the decision makers in that regard. So what I actually wanted to ask was in terms of writing, like how do you get inspired by the actor? Like how, you know, if let's say you, you have an idea for a role or, you know, a character, and then you see that person sort of play it up and bring it to life. How do you then go, yeah, that's someone I want to write for? that makes sense. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. I mean, if you're on a, you know, a TV show, you get a chance to see, you know, the actor all the time. So yeah. you know what they do when you write to them. Um, right. And how do you do it? I don't know. You just do. You just think yeah. what they might do that would be funny. You know, yeah. I wrote for House for a couple of years and just I knew what Hugh Laurie could do. And, and so, you know, writing for him. He's super um, inspiring, I imagine. Yeah, he is inspiring. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, actors that you don't, you know, you know, for all the other parts, you know, you're not going to know which actor is going to be in it. I'm sure the answer for that. Yeah, I would say that whenever I, one. I would say that whenever I write something, you know, I like to have an actor in mind just to help mm. me with the writing. Yeah. Or you know, usually it's an actor, not always. I wrote a uh, pilot a couple of years ago where I just wanted my character to have the attitude of Miranda Lambert, the country singer. Yeah. So I just, you know, I had her in mind visually, but mainly I listened to her music while I was writing it. Yeah. And I just envisioned if she was an actor you know, what she would, you know, do with the role. Got it. And so, you know, a lot of my stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking who the actor is as I'm writing it. That's great. So I, how do actors inspire me? You know, I don't know. I, I mean, they always inspire you when, when, they're, when, they're, when they perform something of yours and you see, uh, which happens just about all the time, you see them doing things that, you know, you didn't think of, you know, that yeah. they go above and beyond what you would have, that you would have imagined. And, you know, that's, you know, any kind of, TV or theater or movies, that's the most joyful part of the collaboration is when people make each other, you know, better than they, you yeah. know, individually. It's a collaboration, even if they're not in the room. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure if that answers your question. I mean, I in general, just yeah. actors should just, actors just do what they do and writers do what they do. And well, the reason why I bring it up is because a lot of actors, there's, you know, different roles that obviously there's guest stars, there's co-stars, series regulars. And so when actors go in for series regular roles, a lot of times they're told to bring more to a role because you're bringing it to life. You're bringing this new character sometimes to life that has the potential to go on for potentially seven seasons. So if that's the case, the idea is you want to bring enough to the character to have the writers look at you and go, oh my God, I could build a whole thing out of this. I can build more from this. I can take this story. I can take that. And so I guess that's kind of where my perspective was coming from in that question. I guess you and generally, either as an actor or writer, I think you want to, you know, let it all hang out. You don't want to be like this, like, oh, should I do this with the characters? It's like, if you're feeling it, you know, just do it. And, do and if, it. if they like it, because I guess, you know, if you don't put yourself out, you ain't going to get the role. Or you're not going to write a good script, whatever it might be that you're trying to do. Whereas if, if you do put yourself all the way out there, you know, sometimes people might not like it. You know, right. I, read a, I, true, I read a million novels that I don't like or I start them anyway. But, you know, a lot of people do like novels, you know, that anyway, you just put yourself out there and then yeah. just hope for the best. But do you have someone potentially in mind for the film adaptation of The Necklace? Yeah, I don't, don't say I, it. I don't think I should I should say it out loud, but I definitely had somebody in mind as I was writing it. Yeah, um, it's my woman in The Necklace. You, you know, she's in her 50s. Yeah. And it's she's somebody that has been. You know, she hasn't been particularly, I don't know if the word is strong, that might be the wrong word, because you have to be to recover from, you know, from your daughter uh, being killed. But she hasn't been, like, fighting. And she finds it, to me, it's like a coming-of-age story of a woman right. in her 50s. Like, she finds herself like this, and nobody believes her that this guy is innocent. So she's got to convince the FBI, she's got to convince wow. everybody, oh, my God, that this is really true. And so she's got to fight for it. And she's never, she fights like she's never fought before in her life. She's never been in this situation. So it's just like this ordinary small town, you know, diner waitress who takes on the FBI to uh, get justice for her daughter 
And so, you know, so it's a great role for, for a woman in her 50s. Yeah. So um, I think uh, I think we'll have good luck uh, finding I think so, too, for sure. Yeah. So, um, so you did Law & Order, right? So you, you went through Law & Order. And so what was the next project after that, if you remember? At least how did you start maneuvering? Because I think for a while after, you did one or two episodes of these different shows, which is really cool. So- well, cool in a way. Some of it was some of it was the shows didn't last. Some of it was that was that I didn't get hired back. I had the unfortunate uh, thing happen of uh, you know I'd be on a show and I wouldn't be asked back the next year, mm-hmm. and um, that part was the hardest part of my uh, TV career was yeah. to sometimes be not asked back. Um, and sure. um, you, you know uh, uh, <laughs> now looking back on it, now that I'm mostly writing uh, uh, novels now. It's, you know, it's kind of, kind of a trip for me when I look back and realize most of the shows that I wrote for, I would never want to watch. And it's like, it, you know, it's just a weird thing. And honestly, even the shows that I wrote for that were really, I, I could say, objectively good. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I would not have like sat back on my, you know, sofa and watched a Law and Order episode or, or a House episode or a Pretty Little Liars episode. Even though I acknowledge, you know, like those are all good shows. Yeah. It's not for me. So that was like the hardest part to be writing shows where I'd always, you know, be writing, you know, the best of my, well, I write great stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. But it wasn't stuff that um, was the closest to my heart. So that was the hardest part. And so sometimes I think some of my, some of my uh, lack of love, you know, showed through a little bit. And then sometimes, you know, occasionally you get a head writer who is just uh, a freaking uh, not not on my wavelength at all. Yeah. Well, how do you approach like a show, for example, like Pretty Little Liars, which is, you know, such a huge favorite with the audience, but yet maybe not something like you said that you watch? Pretty Little Liars, I actually happen to love working on that show. Um, I uh, worked with they hired me. Uh, I was kind of a specialist in that circumstance because I'm very good at plotting out mysteries. You know, I've written four mysteries and, yeah. and I've done a lot of, you know, crime shows also TV and, and, um, and a movie script also. So, so they hired me to like be the guy that would help them, you know, plot out the season. So I was there for, for the beginning of the season for the first few months to, you know, plot out like the, we did like pretty rigorous plotting on the first, uh, I think eight or 10 episodes. And then also general plotting for the last, uh, for the whole 22 or 24 while wow. I was there. And so that was actually a lot of fun. That was one of, I really liked the people and also found it really interesting because just the way they, they worked on the outline was just different for me. So mm-hmm. for instance, what they would do is they would only focus on one of the characters, Aria, right. and they would just, put up her story on the board, the, say, seven scenes that she was in on the board. And then they would put the next character. I'm going to forget all the characters. Name is Hannah. There's an Emily. Oops. There's a Hannah. Yeah. And Spence. Spencer. Spencer. Yeah. And so they would put out, you know, they would put up, we would, like, we would put up for each episode, you know, seven scenes for each of these girls. And then we would also put up maybe, you know, five scenes for Ezra, the teacher. Right. And then, you know, so everybody's story. And then we would also like write a sentence about everybody's story, like a general sentence. Like for Hannah, it would be something like desperate to, you know, pass math. Hannah pays somebody to to cheat with her on the math and gets caught by, you know, somebody. And so, so then we, you know, we, that would be the general sentence. And we, so we figure out the overall and some of the specifics for each character. And then at the end of it, like we'd meld everything together. And it was just so much fun at the end of this. Like we, we would have been working, say, for a week to put up all the right index cards right. for each of these characters. And then finally we had them. It's like, how is it really all going to fit together? You know, is it really possible to do? Is it going to make any sense? And it, it would. It was, yeah. like, it was amazing to see in that one thing. We'd like two hours. So we'd put it all together. And it would all be really cool. So I just loved the, the geometry of it. I loved the math, mathematics of it, of the, of the structuring. Did you approach um, other shows that way? Because I know you worked on Supernatural, which is also mystery. Yeah, that was a little bit less of a, of a writer's room kind of situation. The um, the guy who ran that didn't really like uh, writer's rooms. He just he just found them inefficient, and he was just more of an introverted kind of guy. Hmm. And so, you know, that was actually, even though, it, and that was actually, you know what, that was to some extent a standalone show. Not not totally, and it got less so as as the years progressed. But uh, certainly the episodes that I worked on were more standalone. They weren't part of the general cosmology of the show. So that was m- more working on your own than then going to the head writer. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. 
you know, it's, it's really become much more common than it used to be. That yeah. It would be writer's room, you know, for every single show. Um, yeah, I forget. I was going to say something else about, about oh, Pretty Little Liars. You know, about about the pretty geometry. Little viruses. And not just that, the geometry, yes. There's also, you know, some rooms are like so friendly. They're like, um, you know, if you have a, if like one word for it in Hollywood is RBI, which is a baseball word, but it also mm. means really bad idea. So like, <laughs> To me, the definition of a good writer's room is where you can go in with an RB, you can spout out an RBI, really bad idea, and you don't feel bad. Everybody's given really, really bad ideas. Nobody's going to make you feel funny. You just feel comfortable. Right. And those are the rooms that are like the most creative and have the best shows, best That's episodes. So best, tr- best that shows. makes so much sense. And um, so anyway, so those are those are to me. And Pretty Little best. Liars was it was a room like that where you were able to bring in really bad ideas yeah. and still like work on. Work off of them, I can't speak. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah. that was a great circumstance. Um, and you know, not all rooms are like that. Some of them are like, you, you know, um, well, you can all get all kinds of weird things. You can get people that aren't really, uh, the worst writer's room I ever worked on was a TV show called, uh, The Glades. Yeah. Where we would, we would, we would come up with something. We'd work for three or four weeks on something. And the head writer would be off uh, in post-production because he just liked being in post-production. Huh. And he'd come back after we worked for three or four weeks. And he's, oh, there's a piece of, you know, piece of crap, you know, forget about it. So like, it was like incredibly ineff- inefficient and demoralizing. Yeah. Um, and frustrating, I'm sure, because then you're like, you weren't here for the last three, four weeks. Oh, it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. That was my worst TV experience. Yeah. And that was also, that was funny because there was some studio that wanted to work with me and they had four shows that were up that year. I read them all. Two of them I liked. One of them I thought was okay. And then there was The Glades, which I thought was junky. And the only one that made it to air <laughs> was the one I thought was junky. God. So I thought it was really bad. Uh, not really bad. I thought it was bad. So. I go in for an interview with the guy. It was an RBI. That was a really bad idea. <laughs> I go in for an interview with the guy. And the way it works with these interviews, if you're a writer, yeah. is you, um, they, they show you the rough cut of the episode. So I went in and I saw the rough cut of the episode. And it was better than the script, I thought. I mean, the oh, good. Yeah. script I thought was junk. And the, and the episode, when I saw it, was only mediocre. It was like but not it wasn't bad. terrible. Yeah. It was like mediocre. And yeah. I was so thrilled. You know, that it was mediocre because, you know, I wanted the job because I, you know, I had two kids, you know, going to college and, you know, I had expenses. And, um, so I was so thrilled that it was just mediocre that when I went in to see the head writer, I was like so cheerful because I was, and I, you know, I must have put out the most positive energy because, you know, he hired me. And, uh, I think about it sometimes now. I think, you know, maybe I should feel bad that I faked him out, you know, because like, you know, you really want a writer on your show if you're a head writer who likes it. Obviously, passionate passionate about it. And he got stuck with me, who uh, who did not think highly of it. Interesting. Um, but, you know, I don't know. That's the way the world works. So. Yeah. Well, you got so to feed your family. I was going to ask you, though. So there's a difference. I mean, there's some shows that you kind of um, overlap with these two roles. But you're, you know, you're a writer on a lot of these shows. And you're also a writer and a supervising producer, a producer on, on the show. So I wanted to ask about those different roles and how, you know, they functioned. Well... They function differently on different shows. So, for instance, uh, when I was on JAG, the, uh, uh, one of the roles of the uh, writers, and it actually was true of every writer, whether their title was supervising producer or co-producer, or there are all kinds of different, you know, titles, which I can tell you about if you're interested. Well, basically, there's like a, there's like a hierarchy of like how much you get paid, depending. So it goes like this, staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, and executive producer. And so basically what that, what those, what those means are very roughly corresponds to how much money you make. On some shows, you might be a supervisor, producer, or a co-exec and still have very few responsibilities in addition to the writing. Got it. On other shows, you might be a relatively low level writer, uh, an executive story editor, and still have a lot of uh, responsibilities. So it depends on, on what the head writer, you know, wants. Um, in some shows, w- one of my favorite experiences in that regard was, was Jack, where I got to do uh, editing on all of my episodes. And I think most writers feel like we're good editors. And I think it's, honestly, I think it's probably true because editing is really about storytelling. And I think we are good at that. And, and I was good yeah. at it. And I really, I really enjoyed doing it. Um, and other shows, 
they don't necessarily want your input that much on the uh, on the editing, but they'll want you to be on set. So, right. for instance, on JAG, we were maybe on set one day out of eight. It's an eight-day shoot. Whereas on House, uh, we gave our input into the into the editing, but we weren't supposed to be that involved. We we're just okay. supposed to give input on the rough cuts and, and the producer cut. But uh, but on House, uh, you were supposed to be on set for for the entire eight days wow. of the shoot. So how just, was that? I mean, that's different. Well, you know, I liked it in the sense that uh, I especially liked it working with Hugh Laurie. I just thought yeah. he was just watching him was great, and he was just a nice guy. Were you um, ever involved in the casting choices for you know in those different positions? Yeah, yeah. I think in in most of them, I think I was involved in the casting choices. I I don't think I don't think I had the final say. That was always the head writer. Yeah. But I was uh, I was certainly in the room while the, you know all the um, actors were auditioning for the for the guest starring roles and so on. Yeah. Any tips or any advice on what you saw that you liked? I mean, a lot of it's based on like, are you good for the role and are you the best one? But anything that comes to mind. You know, I've been to a lot of those, and I just don't know what I would say except. That's fair. You know, I just, the, the person I, I like best, there was one role, and I should not be too specific about this, but this was a show that was, um, uh, it was very important to me. And I remember, I remember just loving this one actor who was trying out for the role. I just thought she was really, really good. And she was like exactly what I was thinking. But the, this is a situation where it's a director, not a head writer. It was a, a different situation. Yeah. But anyway, his feeling was that she was didn't have the charisma, you know, or whatever it was. So he hired and he wanted, to, and he had it was a different situation. I, I don't want to go into the specifics, sure. but he had the power to decide who the actress would be. So he hired an actress that was like really, you know, kind of kind of sweet, definitely, absolutely. And my concern was my character was like. Uh, like a military kind of person. She had to be really oh, strong. Yeah. And it was good to have some sweetness to her, but she had to be like really strong. And my feeling was cast somebody who's really strong and you'll find that like the, you know, bits of sweetness. I wanted to have this other actor who was like, you know, in real life, she was a really good um, martial arts yeah. you know, fighter and like that. She just carried herself that way. Yeah. And the other woman, you know, was more, was more sweet. And I honestly think it was because of the, the physical look, like the hair color and, yeah. and just the, just the physical look that he went for this other one. So we cast this, this sweeter person and she did a, she did a, you know, a pretty, pretty good job. You know, she didn't do a bad job, but she just, you could see her and I could see her during the, during the she, production, yeah. just fighting to project the strength that she needed to project. And she just, you know, she, she just didn't, she just didn't really have it. Yeah. And, and the other one I just feel like would have been, um, would have definitely had the strength. And it reminds me, actually, when I had a, I had a play that was produced called Washington Square Moves, and the main character was a a, uh, a guy who was, um, he, you know, he came from a very poor background. He'd been in prison, and now he's like playing chess in Washington Square. Right. And so, like, he's like he's like the king of Washington Square. You know, who wants to play the king of Washington Square? You know, only two dollars, your money back if you win. Da 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 da. And it's like. So in New York, we had a guy who was terrific, a guy named uh, Robert Gossett, who's the cousin of Lou Gossett and a good friend of mine uh, we, we met through there. And he was just absolutely fabulous because he came, you know, from that kind of background. You know, he came from very, from the age of 12 or whatever, was not a, not a, not a middle class background. I'll just say that. Now that I've given his name, I realize I shouldn't tell some of the stories that I know about his childhood. So I will not say that, but I will say that he knew what it was like to to be uh, poor and desperate. Yeah. But he also understood that when you're one of the chess players at Washington Square or you're anywhere in life, I noticed yeah. this in prison, you make the best out of whatever the situation is. You try to have fun. You know, in prison, people were like laughing all the time, you know. And yeah. in Washington Square, you go there, the guys are having fun. You know, they're giving each other uh, uh, stuff and they're, you know, like this and like this. And it's great. That's great. Yeah. So so he did the, actually, he did, the, excuse me, he did the Los Angeles production at, at Mojo Ensemble. So he was really super upbeat, and also we had a really beautiful set. Like, they made Washington Square look really fun. Okay, so we, then we had a New York production. Right. And we had this um, middle-class actor in the role. He yeah. grew up middle-class. I grew up in Cincinnati. He actually grew up right near me in Cincinnati. It was a middle-class area. And we actually went to the same high school at different, uh, different times. And um, good guy, good actor. But, man, he tried so hard to project, like, being poor. Yeah. And down and out. So when he came onto that stage, like instead of like, 
you know, who wants to play the King of Washington? He was like, first of all, he had a funky hat. You know, he had like a knit cap that looked messed up. And so he came on like this. He's, who wants to play King of Washington Square? Your money back. <laughs> and it's like, man, I wouldn't want to play. And there ain't nothing fun yeah. about it. There's no joy there. You know, there's no way he's going to, he's not going to bring the audience in. And he's not going to bring the people in Washington Square in to play right. chess with him. And the director, uh, he, um, you know, the set choices, it was dark and, and lighting choices, dark, dingy. So New York was this dark, dingy thing with this, with this guy who just, he put so much energy into appearing poor and down and out that he didn't have time to try to have fun. Whereas Robert in LA, he didn't have to work at all about what it was like being poor. And he was like going to yeah, have some fun. It came from and somewhere else. Okay. It came from somewhere else. That was a, that New York production was tough for me. I, I had a sort of a family uh, health issues. So I was unable to be at the, at the, uh, at all the rehearsals. I had right. to leave for about two and a half weeks. Yeah. And like, so like, you know, I said, you can't be wearing that hat, you know, so he took it off. But then when I came back, he was, I mean, they're all good people there, but no, 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 it has nothing to do with that. Yeah. So anyway, so that's, there's just a certain thing with an actor that, you know, I think that you got to make sure they got the, like the, the key thing. And then the other stuff, you know, just you can, of... you know, they can work on and like that, but this is the key thing. It's almost like an energy thing. Like it's like something like you have to just match it. Like it, it's kind of like what you're saying. He, he, you know, one guy had the background for it, so he didn't have to try. He just exactly. already came, he came in the room like that. Exactly. And, um, and one woman just comes in strong and she doesn't have to try. Yeah. Um, I know I'm, I want to be mindful of time because I know you have somewhere else. Um, I just wanted to ask quickly. So I know you've been teaching a lot recently, right? Like that's what yeah, you're... I've been teaching. Uh, and, and just by the way, I'll say I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay talking. If you think okay. it's, if you think people would enjoy it, I'm cool. With oh, it. yes. A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, I've been teaching, yes, I've been teaching uh, uh, one course a year at uh, UCLA Extension. I teach a course in uh, pilot writing. You know, I love it. It's like uh, uh, I work with people that write things that I would ordinarily never work on. So, for instance, uh, well, a few, I mean, years ago, I, w I was doing also a sample. Well, no, let's skip. Uh, they do things that I would never, uh, never write on my own. So, okay. for instance, somebody will write this, this horror pilot script or somebody will write a, um, you know, a sci-fi script that I would never ordinarily write or somebody will write somebody last year, somebody wrote something really great about a, a model who's a little bit over the hill when she's trying to figure out what to do with her life. Just things I would never ordinarily write. And by working with these students who are very talented, you know, I get the opportunity to work on things that otherwise I would never, you know, be doing. Yeah. And uh, it just expands me as a writer. And, and then, I, you know, I see what they're doing and I, I really, you know, enjoy it. So actually, I'll put in a little pitch for UCLA Extension, which yeah. is that, you know, in general, for writers, it's easy, obviously, to be isolated, to feel isolated. It's very important, I feel, to have a, um, you know, a group of writers that you meet with in some way. Yeah. And, uh, and one way to get that group of writers, if you don't have one already, is to join a class at UCLA Extension or elsewhere. Uh, UCLA Extension happens to have really good uh, uh, students and really dedicated, hardworking students. And, you know, in a lot of my classes and other people's classes, uh, the students, you know, stay together after the class. They keep going to writers groups. They form writers groups. They keep working together. And eventually I've had situations where my students have gotten each other jobs. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, there's a writer named Aaron Dobson and her friend uh, Holly Overton have, like, you know, really helped each other out professionally as they have both of them sort That's of amazing. climbed the ladder uh, in, in writing. So, you know, I, I think those kinds of things are those kinds of it's good for your writing. Those kinds of situations are good for your writing and also good for networking. That's great. I know you wrote some pilots. Is there any, you know, are there any pilots that you can talk about? And you wrote a couple for like, it was like MTV, ABC, the CW. How's that, how's that experience? Uh, you know, that experience was great. I worked with executives that, that I thought really gave great notes. I've, I've been very fortunate in that regard is that the pilots that I wrote, I don't think I ever got a note that drove me nuts. You know, they always, they always made it better. So, um, were any of them picked up and just, you know, none of them were the picked up. Them? You know, when you write a pilot in the, in the TV business, like NBC or whatever might hire, you know, 98, you know, drama pilots in a given year. Right. And only about four of them make it to air. So that's, um, you know, that's the percentage that you go up against. Yeah. And actually one of my thoughts in writing novels now is that, um, you know, I'm writing a novel now called Clickbait that I think would be an excellent TV series. And I think it helps if you have intellectual property, if you're trying to create a novel, a, novel, uh, a TV show. Would you and, want to be the head writer for that if it does get picked up as a TV show? Oh, absolutely. I want yeah. to push people around. 
Excellent. Yeah, you might as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, you've had so many experiences with other head writers. You can create a whole environment of your, of your own. That's right. That's right. I'm going to hire people I don't like just for the express fun of firing them. <laughs> you and can then, find- of course... You can and find then, the course, students, though. You could also hire the students. Some of yes, them. I would hire my students, and I would hire just people that I love. It would just be so much fun, you know. You, you know, you fantasize about the people that uh, that you would hire. Yeah. That is one reason. I mean, with with creating a television show uh, or a movie, for that matter, it helps so much if it's based on intellectual property. When you go yeah. into to pitch pitch things, projects, uh, the producers really like to hear, you know, original where it's coming from. Yeah. So this is actually, you know, part, and it's worked obviously with the necklace, you know, novel and also a, uh, and also the uh, movie. Right. And I'm hoping it works for uh, clickbait okay. as well. And, and actually, I have another project also that I'm that I'm interested in. The other thing I enjoy about that is that when I write a novel and then switch to writing the screenplay version or the pilot version, it kind of teaches me something that I take back when I write the novel, which teaches right. me something when I write the uh, pilot version or the screenplay version. So, and it's also a lot of fun. I had a question that someone asked about, like, what inspires you as a writer? And um, I read the book uh, Yes by Shonda Rhimes, Year of Yes. I don't know if you... And she I've was, heard of it. I'm not she was, I haven't she, read it. She was talking about the writing process. And she was saying that, like, for her specifically, writing is like a marathon. And she always feels like the first, like, three, four miles are huge headache like she just needs to like try again and again and again to get into like a flow if you will and once she's there she's there she could write like you know for 10 miles uh, the equivalent of 10 miles but she said that's why she's like i can't have anyone disturb me during my writing or else i'm back to square one and i have to go through those initial three miles do you have a similar writing process or is it different for you no it's totally the same you know i i have a you know novella that i'm writing and and i keep getting you know, distracted from it by having to do other projects. And it's just crazy because each time, let's say I'm writing the novella, I get to page 50, let's say, and then I get distracted. I can't restart on page 51. If I've been away from it, I have to go back to page one, start from the beginning. So like, okay, I start from the beginning and I go to page 70, then I get distracted by something else. And so then I have to go back to page one. And like it happens, you know, so many times it can be really frustrating. You know, it just happened uh, yesterday, actually. Something came in that I have to do, you know, right now, a project that I have to do. And it's like I had to put down the novella again. It's like so incredibly frustrating. Yeah. I really benefited last year. I went to an artist colony in Iceland for a month and I really did not get distracted for a month. And so I was able to totally do that. It sounds uh, amazing. It was it was really amazing, actually. Not just because we can't travel right now, but Iceland sounds fantastic. Well, if you ever want to go to Writer's Colony, I recommend this one. It's called Gulkestan. Gulkestan. And it's really, really terrific. It's in a small town in Iceland uh, that's just incredibly beautiful. And it's like you're on Mars. It's just a very, you know, there's various geothermal springs coming out from everywhere. It's the strangest landscape I've ever seen. So nice. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever get hired to consult? You, you always hear about like um, just writers consulting on scripts and, and, you know, screenplays and stuff like that. They'll hire writers for that. Do you ever do that? Yeah. I mean, through UCLA Extension, I've been hired to probably help about 10 or 15 people with their scripts. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, I've enjoyed that. Plus, I did a little bit of international work. I, I helped some people in Belgium uh, with create a show. It's called Vermicht. It's, uh, it's uh, Flemish, Flemish for, nice. um, for missing. And it's now in 93 countries. So that's awesome. Big success. Yeah. Um, congrats. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun, you know, consulting with other writers. It gets you outside of your head a little bit. It's different. It's a different process, I imagine, to have to consult. It's like, or to like just take a script that's already done that's not your idea and, and rework it, I guess. I don't know. I can't imagine. Well, it depends how much, you know, reworking it needs. But yeah, you just try to, you just, you know, as long as the writer is, is, uh, is into it, then, then it's, it's good. I don't know. I enjoy it. There's one um, woman that, um, that, that she asked me to do, uh, to help her with a couple of her scripts. And then she asked me to do a third script. And I said, well, instead of that, how about if I ask you to read my, uh, novella? Because my novella has, is about the future of neurology, uh, neuroscience. Yeah. And she happens to be a neurologist. So I said, oh, how about if we make a deal? Nice. So, you know. All right. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. I've enjoyed talking with you. This has been fantastic. It really has. And I appreciate it. Where can people find your work? I know that uh, The Necklace is coming out next year. And they can uh, read my uh, four novels, uh, Jacob Burns novels, humorous amateur sleuth novels. And um, so you can, you know, find them on Kindle and uh, put your feet up, have a cup of tea and, and you'll enjoy them. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matt. 
It's been mm-hmm. wonderful. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Have a great day. Take care. Hey, everybody. Chris from Entertainment Podcast, and you are listening to one of the coolest podcasts on the World Wide Web. You are listening to Mentors on the Mic with Michelle Miller. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to that interview. Like I said, check out our Facebook group, Mentors on the Mic, to hear three answers, three questions and answers that Matt um, answered that was provided by you guys. So thank you so much for your questions. Please, um, you know, review, rate the podcast. I'm going to read a review that I loved that we just received titled So Inspiring. Each of Michelle's guests have a great story to tell, and all of them have an empowering message of being patient, believing in yourself, and just learning about the entertainment world. And this is from Stop Giviga. So thanks for the rating. Thanks for the review. And if you guys haven't done so yet, please visit um, Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you can review and review the podcast. But it really, really does help, especially in Apple Podcasts. And I really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors there. These are crazy times, and now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. Every week I'm choosing a review to read on an episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks.